Hey there everyone, Gav Jones here, hope you're doing really well. On this episode, I was joined by Director of Photography and Managing Director of Training Provider Skills to Film, Jeremy Humphreys. Jeremy was trained via the BBC and has been involved in work filming all over the world, from mine victims in Angola to meeting Nelson Mandela himself. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Big House Podcast. So you well though? Yeah, no, we're fine. Yeah, we're just outside Bath, um, yeah. and I've got a 15-year-old who's busy doing his GCSEs or not, as the case might be, <laughs> uh, at the moment. Um, and I've got a wife um, who's just changed jobs, um, but she's working from home as well. She's going into motivational consultancy. Oh right, okay. And, and all that side of stuff. So she's been busy doing. She's done a few podcasts actually, but she's also doing a lot of um, online sort of um, work with companies and stuff, or, or is hoping to be. Um, and um, I've been doing a lot of training online, both on the broadcast side and with the corporate companies as well. Oh, right. Which okay. has been great. Um, big sort of global insurance companies. And um, I have a client who I sort of work through as a third party sort of organization. So um, that can be anybody from their clients, can be the foreign office through sort of royal household, and they come in to learn how to create their own video content. So right. I train them how to do that. Um, and then there's the broadcast side and I've been doing some stuff with Sony. So, yeah, no, we're fine. Um, <laughs> Keep and we live out in the middle of nowhere. So to be honest, lockdown has been not hugely different to what we have um, anyway. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite remote where I am, to be fair. Yeah. But, but you still, if you ever want to get out and get some fresh air, there always seems to be a load of people appear from somewhere. I don't know where they are. Yeah, from. no, there are. Yeah. So <laughs> whereabouts are you? Are you, are you in Southampton or are you near so it? I'm on the outskirts of Southampton. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm in a sort of a, a small town on the outskirts. That, um, okay. Yeah, it's got it's got quite a sort of huge retail area um, okay. there. So and yeah. travel connections, the M27's right next to it. So it's... Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a fairly busy small town that they like to develop a lot of uh, housing in this area as well. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it's good. So my, um, my, my, I must say, my son is a huge Southampton fan. We go down there quite a lot. Oh really? Okay. Massive yeah. Southampton fan. Um, and also, I made one of my big sort of um, iconic, I guess, film series back in two thousand and five in Shirley, which you may have heard of. Yes, I've um, heard of Shirley. Um, suburb or very run-down suburb in, in the day there well yes um in, interesting place um but yeah no we know Southampton well now because Ben and I frequently go down get the little two carriage train down from Bath oh, right. down to um um Southampton St Mary's um obviously not at the moment but but we've done a lot of that yeah no no I mean yeah. it's, it's you know it well yeah how long does that take on the train anyway <clears throat> not long two hours two hours well, I say yeah, it's, it's it... nice little chuff chuff um, down through Salisbury and stuff. No, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Good. So what I want to, obviously, I'm really interested when I saw your profile um, <laughs> on the, uh, was it Matchmaker? It makes yeah. it sound like a dating site, but... You yeah, know, it does a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> I've got, I did get in trouble. Yeah, I got in trouble a little bit at first with my other half. She. Um, yeah, she, I can imagine. What are you doing on Matchmaker? <laughs> different type. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, so I was very interested when I saw uh, you know the sort of work that you've been involved in. Yeah. So, I mean, you were you're tra you're a trained uh, trained cameraman by the BBC, which is kind of where was your start. But your I suppose your title is you're a director of photography. Is that 
Was that? Okay? Yeah, that's what they call me when I left. So I tend to use it. Yeah. <laughs> you stick with it. Just I stick to it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but what? Um, so apart from that, I mean, explain to us a little bit about who you are, and you know, what does a director of photography do in in, in essence? So my name's Jeremy Humphreys, um, and I'm a BBC trained director of photography. That's one of those names you see fly at high speed at the end of your films and they squeeze it down, but director of photography. Um, and I filmed pretty much everything from Civil War to Gulf War um, and films with Mandela through to groundbreaking social documentaries. So it's a career that so far has spanned 40 years. Um, and to this day, when I have a camera on my shoulder, I'm still loving every minute of it. And that's fantastic that you still love it that much, I suppose, because it, it's it's almost an area that's developed with technology and uh, new techniques or, uh, constantly, I would imagine. Yeah, no, it, it has. I mean, the, the cameras you get nowadays allow us to do a lot more. They allow us to film longer. Uh, they can allow us to film uh, in sort of lower light conditions. They can allow us to film in sort of smaller confined um sort of um situations um that shouldn't take us away from the fact that cameras now are still quite big and still can be quite heavy but yeah that there has been a reduction and it gives us that much more flexibility definitely yeah expensive bits of equipment uh very expensive bits of equipment as you can see hugely this is expensive hugely expensive and, and and i mean if i were to follow project back into you know my very first camera i got my very first um super eight millimeter movie camera when I was barely a teenager, my mum and dad bought it for me and it was a very cheap and cheerful camera. Um, and I filmed absolutely anything that came my way. Um, my family, um, animals, we lived out in the countryside. Um, and I, I vividly remember kicking off with, um, I used to paint the little airfix soldiers that you used to get. Yes. Um, yes. And, and, and I created a Battle of Waterloo, I remember, which was out of paper mache um, sort of scenery that I built with glue and bits of newspaper. And, and I got the airfix soldiers. And although I wasn't into animation, I would film these soldiers for a while, stop the camera. And then for reasons unknown, I, I actually got little buds of cotton wool and put them underneath the paper mache. And I'd actually soak them in my father's lawnmower fuel and then <laughs> I would light them and I would then start the camera up again so when the camera ran there was no explosion and then in the edit there's suddenly a big plume of smoke so poor dad was 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 losing his um lawnmower fuel over a considerable period of time but that's that's how it started and I had such fun that the house did smell a little bit of lawnmower fuel and fumes <laughs> Uh, and I was probably only about 12 or 13, something like that. But I vividly remember, probably just as I became a teenager, my mother took me into Bristol, which is close to where we lived. And we went to a photographic shop. And there was a camera there that I'd had my eye on. I, I, I was probably reading the Movie Maker magazine or something as a hobby then. Um, and I clearly remember it was £219.99. And I couldn't afford it. I didn't have enough um, pocket money. So mum took me home, we saved up and then we came in and we bought that camera and it was a much bigger, better camera. It allowed me to do more things than 
um, I'd done on the previous one, and that's sort of where it all began. I had a, 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 a quite a snazzy 219 pound 99 pence camera, and I thought the world was my oyster. I kind of got this this uh, image of you is getting this you know all singing all dancing camera and then thinking I've got to up my game with my battle scenes I've got to have fireworks I've got to have all these extra things just to try and make it look a bit <laughs> a bit more explosive totally. it? it was exactly that you know not not only sort of um better explosions but I think I started then hanging um I, I, I moved up I promoted myself to my uh airfix modeling uh, sort of caliber <laughs> And I then started, I vividly remember this, making sort of the airplanes that we could get, you know, you remember? Um, yeah. And I put them on mum's washing line and sent them down the washing line at high speed, <laughs> <laughs> filming and a few flames again, it was probably the lawnmower fuel uh, coming out at the same time. But, but it was great because, you know, what better thing to do when you're a teenager, you're actually using bits of film that you can smell, you could have film was a chemical. Uh, yeah. And it would come back. I'd send uh, the little three-minute thirty roll off to Paris, where um, it was at Hammer Hempstead. Kodak had a place there, or latterly it was Paris, um, and it was processed. And it came back, and as you tore open the packet, this waft of sorry, this waft of sort of um, a film chemical smell, and it sort of got into your your hair and your brain, and you just live for that moment. Uh -huh. um, and you cut the film together and you had little bits of tape to, to cut together. But my mum and dad, again, were hugely supportive in terms of every November, they would have run a film show. Okay. And we had a, we had a little hatch. Uh, don't you get hatches now between one room and the other? <laughs> I, used to, I used to have a hatch. I remember you know, the hatch. Well, yeah, we, I remember the hatch. talk about hatches, but <laughs> there, was, there was a hatch between the kitchen and the sitting room. And I love the fact that I could actually be in the kitchen with the hatch down as my projection booth when I'd set oh, right, yeah. up at the far end of mum and dad's sitting room. Mum would go around with the sort of the volivans and dad would go around with the sherry. <laughs> um, lucky they came my way and, and we would have a little film show. Um, and that was interesting for two reasons. Um, it was interesting because it was just a way of me demonstrating what I'd done, like a fun story or part of a holiday. But more than that, for the first time, I think, because I wasn't a very confident teenager, I was quite shy, okay. lacked in confidence, didn't say much. I think for the first time, it gave me that sort of ability to get people's attention. Um, and I'm not saying my films were any good at all in that day and age, you know, back then. But there was something, a little spark, a little seed was sown. But it sounded um, like you had a lot of support from your family. To, they were know, great, yeah. I mean, yeah. mum and dad um, took me, took me, as I say, to um, film shows. And I seem to remember when I was, um, I then subsequently in 1978, 79, made a film called Acrobats of the Garden, which was about a little blue tit living in an S-box. And I put a camera in the back of an S-box and filmed it rearing its young. Mum and dad took me to the Institute of Amateur Cinematographers Award in London, and I think I got a special mention or something like that. But I was bitten by that TV bug because at the same time, I'd seen somewhere, um, I think it was down your neck of the woods, somewhere on the South Coast, um, an outside broadcast. And it fascinated me, you had this one person, this presenter in front of the camera, then behind you had 
10, 20 people running around with cameras, cables, lights, right. microphones. And that absolutely fascinated me. Um, to the extent that my sister, uh, who's a little bit older than me, she would travel and she came back from, I think it was the Middle East, having been working out there, and they shipped her container full of all her uh, belongings back when she came back. And when the belongings were out there, I knocked the container, wooden apart, and I made a little studio. And that was my outside <laughs> broadcast studio. So awesome. it, it was, it was um, a number of things that got me into it. It was, it was that um, love of just creating something. And the fact it was a, a moving image just did something to me then. Um, the fact that I was getting a little bit of interest from people. And also as a kid, it was just heaven because you went to these locations and saw a Jane Austen play being filmed. And it was just... Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. That sounds... I mean, I can't, like, with anything that you think of any child today, anytime, that, that kind of you know, say you're a teenager, but, you know, to have that sort of, that push from everyone, that encouragement, and then have, to go and have these experiences constantly, you you would do nothing but get the bug for it, wouldn't you? Totally. And also, again, as I say, I was a shy, sort of not particularly confident teenager, and it gave me a huge boost. Um, and from that, I mean, two things that would lead into my career started happening. Um, I was very lucky. I had a, an, an uncle that would... Uh, lived near printing works and he would bring me these amazing books with amazing photographs in again from the Middle East or Africa um, and I remember one I may even have bought this myself but it was about the Palestinians okay. and it was by a guy called Don McCullen who was to become a great hero of mine and still is um, and I started studying these photographs and at the same time I was looking at somebody called Ansel Adams. Ansel Adams is a famous uh, American photographer from the right. 50s that used to okay. take black and white shots of Yosemite and uh, the Grand Canyon and stuff. And there was just something there that I was being taken in by. I didn't know what it was at that point, but I was just intrigued and fascinated by this visual image and how it made me feel. Um, and from that sort of very early interest, I, mean, I was hopeless about, you know, doing anything vaguely professional. I mean, I could do a few <laughs> shots, but of course, to, to work in anything uh, even came anywhere near an industry I needed some training but we made this acrobats of the garden in 1979 and my mother and I were very lucky I wrote to the BBC in Bristol okay and uh, the natural natural history unit yeah and um, a delightful man who sadly is no longer with us called Peter Bale he was serious producer of the wildlife and one series so come on in show me and I was probably 16 times 16 17 maybe and we sat down in the BBC boardroom in Bristol. I was absolutely terrified. And Mr. Beowald, a serious chain smoker, sitting there on the opposite side, but delightful, lovely, lovely man. Mum sat next to me, projecting the film, slightly concerned the film would jam in the, in the projector, but right. it played. And Mr. Bale, Peter Bale said to my mother at the end, you know, your, your boy's got it. He just needs professional training. Right, and that's where I got sent off to a film school for a year um and got that sort of professional knowledge using a slightly bigger film different cameras and got the input in in terms of steering me to where i'd eventually head as a as a, as a cameraman yeah. yeah i mean and that's i mean again it seems like every step along the way you've been i mean the fact that you just i mean no, i don't think it would happen today you just write a letter off to the bbc and 
you know get those opportunities i don't think you you could try it with an email i'm not sure but <laughs> but the, the fact that you've got that opportunity as well and again that's obviously quite intimidating and then your career developed from there with the bbc with your training didn't it well i was very lucky because peter phoned me back um again um or got me back um probably i was two-thirds the way through my film course so Jeremy, we've, we've got a job here in the BBC Natural History Unit Library as something called a neg cutter, a negative cutter. Okay. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Um, and I got the job and I joined there, it's, it's 40 years ago, 1981, um, autumn 1981. And the neg cutter was basically joining the negative film, which is what we shot on then, together. And the BBC then was just realising that they would have this huge potential in terms of selling power by selling all what we call the trims the film that wasn't used of the animals that had never made the final cut oh, right. and this was uh, only two years after life on earth the big iconic the very first pretty much iconic blockbusting uh, yeah. blockbuster series um, and so in a literally at the room the size of a broom cupboard myself and an editor uh, the editor, Alan, would look at the, the footage and pass it over to me on a big reel, and I would join the ends together. And what you did is you actually had a sort of heated base, steel, and you bring both two um, bits of film together and then press them, put a bit of glue over it, press them down, big steam would go up, and then you'd make the seal, and then you wind it onto the roll and keep doing the shots wherever the edit had to be that way, and that's how I started. And I was 19. Yeah, no, so I was very, very young. But I was part, and you almost became a glue sniffer in the process. Because <laughs> I, but, but it was amazing because I was so young, but it was all inclusive. And this is something I was very keen to, to flag up um, in terms of the mentoring I got. I mean, just people looking after you. And, and, and I, I hear what you say, but I think it is probably still there to a certain extent now as well. Okay, the BBC isn't quite there with the training anymore. It doesn't quite have the same uh, training that I had, but there are those mentors there and, and in the training I'm doing, and we come on to that later, but yeah. I'm always yeah. saying, get yourself a mentor. But anyway, um, I had people looking after me, but I remember within the first week of being there, uh, every week they had a natural history unit meeting in the boardroom, in the same boardroom where I'd done my um, my my viewing of my film. Oh, and you had all these iconic giants of natural history filmmaking. Um, Chris Parsons, who'd, who'd been behind the Life on Earth project. Jeffrey Boswell, sadly no longer with us. He's the huge ornithologist and, and, and he, very outspoken. John Sparks, the director, the actual director, uh, directed the iconic scene with Attenborough and the gorillas yeah. in Rwanda. And they were all sitting next to me. And I could feel the conversation winding around the table to introduce the newcomer. And I was there sort of just shaking. <laughs> 19 years old in, in this sort of halcyon place, this natural history unit. Um, I forgot what I was asked. It was probably just Jeremy, you know, welcome you know what's it like to be here but it, it passed on swiftly but it was an amazing moment and 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 that's how i started yeah in, in the natural history unit library cutting together those bits of negative film yeah do you miss film at all as, as much as um, yeah i mean it, it's still there we still use it um i think the issue with the digital side is we can't actually hold it we it's not a tangible thing it's not so yeah. tangible the film we could hang up uh, when the edit, you'd actually hold it up to the light and see where somebody was 
moving across the frame. Um, and something, you know, we, we mention this again later as well, I'm sure, but um, aesthetically, it had a, a pleasing, um, hugely engaging effect for the viewer in terms of the, word, the way it handled color and contrast. It was, it was almost equivalent to what we could see with the human eye. Now we're getting there with the digital process, yeah. but the fact you could hold this stuff, you could drop it on the floor, pick it up and still cut it into the film um, was quite something. Yeah, yeah, no, amazing stuff. So but when you were, you were talking about those that you look up to in your, you know, in your field, so obviously you've you've had tremendous respect for, you know, seems like a lot of the people that you've worked with and um, obviously for those that you admire through their photography as well. So what is it about their photography that stood out to you? What was, you know, why did you want to follow in these people's footsteps so, so much? I think it's something that only latterly I've probably been able to identify when I say latterly, probably over the last eight to 10 years. Um, and that's these guys and the, the three I'm thinking of are guys. They're obviously there's women hugely influential as well, but they're the, the Henri Cartier-Bresson um, from the 30s. There's Robert Kappa from the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s. Yeah. And there's Don McCullen, who, who I'm delighted to say is still very much with us. Um, and it's the fact, Gav, that they're, they're visual storytellers. And that's where everything I do revolves now. The ability they have, this bit of kit that they can actually engage, they can use the imagery to actually tell a story with just one shot. And yeah. I think it's fair to say what I've always tried to do is with a sequence of shots, I obviously get more uh, attempts at it with my moving uh, movie camera. Um, I've tried to sort of replicate that because that's where um, all my energy, that's where all my knowledge now, um, that's where all my um, ability, I like to think, is aimed at, is just creating amazing visual stories. So the answer to your question is they were the first ones that I was sort of aware of. And they were still as guys, they still are. Um, that's not to say I wasn't interested in movie, um, uh, movie cinematographers. Um, I mean, you can go back and look at all the big David Lean films, and I was fascinated mm. to see how those were done and stuff. But yeah, it's 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 it's, and it's the the fact that it's an illusion, the fact that we right, can okay. create this extraordinary visual storytelling moment. Where else would you sit in a cinema or dark room, a cinema uh, next to a stranger, hopefully captivated by something that's on the silver screen in front of you? Yeah, and that's uh, that. And these guys en enable that to happen, and and that's why I would stare long and hard. At their work and, and I have to say it's not just the photographers I'm fascinated by the great painters as well um I mean I annoy my family by by sitting on a, on a bench in the gallery just staring at a you know renaissance painting or, or a Rembrandt or something and they ask me you know dad or Jeremy why are you looking at it so long and I just say well I can't really tell you but it's just doing something to me but, oh, you know, okay explain more to you why that is later on but but yeah. I mean that that's why I am a visual storyteller and, and they were the first guys show me you know how it could be done you mentioned that thing about being in an art gallery are, are you a bit of a nightmare to take holiday photos do you have to get it exactly right or <laughs> well, I'm, not, I'm not normally allowed to do them for that reason <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no we have to have the light right and yeah and then the composition yeah yeah no i know I, I i certainly can be yeah yeah, I mean that's I think my my dad likes to think he's 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 pretty good, but he um yeah he's he's very much we had to like uh he we had to walk up um 
walk up away from him and then walk yeah. back towards him with the camera oh, to get the right shot. So we, me, yeah, me, like my, yeah, me and my mum had to do a lot of the work. But then, yeah, yeah he was just, yeah, I just got, I've got to have everything exactly right. So he was a oh, perfectionist, sure. that man. Oh, he's so. a man after my own heart. No, I, I like that. <laughs> um, so working for the BBC, how did you find, I mean, it's obviously a huge, huge um, corporation. How did you find working? I mean, obviously you came in, you know, and it was obviously great at the way you came into the organisation, but how did you find it actually working there for a period, you know, for yeah. the, how many years were you with the BBC for? Well, I joined, as I said, I joined in 81. It wasn't until about 83, 1983, when I moved across from the Natural History Unit to what's called the Film Unit, which is the main crews, uh, film crews that were travelling all over the world. So I was there for probably about um, seven or eight years, and I went freelance in the early 90s. Right. But now it's a good question, because when I joined, I, I was sent to Ealing. That's where the BBC Film Studios were mm, yeah. um, in sort of 83, 84. And it was extraordinary because you were suddenly then, and it was mostly cameramen, working, well, walking into this sort of gentrified suit ties and almost white gloved sort of professional yeah. the cameramen as i say they were mostly cameramen then were almost deities they were godlike creatures that for me a lowly trainee assistant cameraman as i was then they wouldn't talk to me um everything communication was sort of rooted through the assistant and then that was there was a, there was a class system involved was there? Total class system mm. um and productions because of course it's a massive team effort it's not just uh, the, the camera teams there's the sound teams there's the sound guys and there's the production team um would sort of quiver in expectation <laughs> if they asked the cameraman to do a certain shot all that i hasten to add for people listening has changed completely now yes but yeah it was quite austere it was quite frightening when i started and again i'm only 2021 um so that started and i went um then and did a year's training at Ealing. Um, I then came back to BBC Bristol, which is where um, I'd, I'd been originally based. Um, and that sort of mentality didn't really come down the motorway. It sort of ended uh, somewhere west of London and down with us, it was much more sort of, um, as, I, as I said, mentor led and much more sort of um, e easier in terms of sort of the relationships that we had between um, you know, our, our, us as assistants and the camera guys. Um, and I was very lucky because in the mid 1980s, um, I first of all started off working on dramas as an assistant. Um, and I used to adjust the focus on the side of the camera, outside the lens. All right, okay. Um, and I'd have to gauge that by eye. That was my job. I was a focus puller. Um, but I had within the Natural History Unit uh, a fantastic um, mentor, a guy called Peter Salmon, who's now very senior in the independent side of the industry and, mm. and, and hugely successful, um, who took me under his wing. And although I was still an assistant, I wasn't officially a cameraman. That's one thing you know you, you, you should know about the BBC. Often they would promote you, but they wouldn't necessarily um, bring up your pay grade or they right. wouldn't necessarily um, give you the title. But I was an assistant, but I was being sent out as a cameraman. Uh, Peter was in charge of a program called Nature. Ah, oh, right. Series. Yeah, no, it was it was an anthropological series all around the all around um, the world, basically. Oh, right. Um, and probably 1987, I was sent to um, Australia um, with my crew um, 
and the production obviously facilitate and they do they do all the work we just turn up and and sort of you know you know when it's all sorted ready for us but um we do an amazing film i still remember very clearly it was about aboriginal women living all right okay living on the Nullarbor Plain, which is sort of central West Australia. Um, they've been affected by British nuclear testing back in the 1950s. Um, oh. And they were still having miscarriages, still having birth defects, you know, uh, 30, on, 30 years on. Um, and it was a film they weren't particularly, at that point, they have been since, uh, well, they weren't particularly well um, legally represented. And we were making a film about that. And that was, that was a, a big moment for me as well, because I suddenly started realizing that I could have an effect in terms of what I filmed and the sequences I filmed, you know, obviously under direction, you know, we, we had directors there as well, but I suddenly realized the power of the camera. Um, yeah. And it was an incredibly moving story as well. Mm. Um, and I'm not gonna be all sort of, um, um sort of um pious and say you know i enjoy making films about you know these, these groundbreaking films that, that that have an effect on people that have been through a lot of awful times so that has often been the way that i uh, it's ended up but that made a mark on me that the fact i could go these tens of thousands of miles uh, mm. and work with these people that literally barely had the the cloth on their backs you're um, kind of you're sharing their story that they would, they, would, they would not have you know been able to share any other way you know absolutely it, right. it seems yeah yeah and, no absolutely right and it was just getting legal credence as well in terms of their their rights and stuff and that's been now taken on they have been well represented but but that was the beginning um and then because of that series um i was very lucky ending up i did a film with the cops uh, coptic christians in Cairo, oh, yeah. the memory was just a film about them, their recycling potentials. Um, it was a fairly green series nature, but I remember oh. their life living in amongst graveyards in Egypt and how emotive that was. You know, everybody goes to Cairo thinking about the pyramids and tourism and stuff. There's this very poor underclass that are often um, shunned um, that live life, you know, right in the in the shadows. Um, and then that's where that same series is where the Mandela um, shoot came from as well. We, we were doing a, uh, a film on uh, black farmers' rights and obviously Mandela, who'd only literally just come out of prison. Um, yeah. This must have been late 1990. Um, just going to prison and obviously it's a huge thing for him to be an advocate for. Um, and it was a story about, from memory, uh, one of the big national parks had allegedly got rid of a lot of the black farmers to make room for just the national parks. And yeah. some fairly gruesome things had happened to these farmers as well. Um, and Mr. Mandela quite rightly wanted to be a, a voice for these people. Um, and this is where those three great letters have taken me around the world, those three BBC letters. Yeah. Um, because the wonderful production department, uh, production team out there got access to the ANC with Mandela. And he was so he was convalescing. He was convalescing. Um, he'd only been out, obviously, of the extraordinary um, imprisonment of 27, 28 years, yeah. only a matter of months. Um, and from memory, again, he had a, a place um, uh, that he was, he'd been given on one of the reserves. It could have been Kruger. And we spent an afternoon with him. Um, extraordinarily gracious, kind, um, quite quiet. Obviously, you know, the, 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 the 27, 28 years was still having a, having a toll. Yes. Um, but 
charming, funny. Um, we did an interview with him in, in the back of why we did it in the back of a safari truck. I can't remember. The safari <laughs> truck was parked up. I think he had to sit down. I, I would say it wasn't moving at the time. It was not at that point. No, oh, there's okay. a quick interview there. And then such is the want of us filmmakers, you always have to do what we call the B-roll, which is the footage that they cut in around the interview so they can shorten the interview or give it a bit more colour. And uh, he agreed to actually do a little circuit around the game reserve um, looking at the animals. And the thing was, there wasn't enough room for everybody besides me, the cameraman, uh, my sound recordist, Bruce, and my um, the, the uh, Mandela's bodyguard driver, right. and uh, Mr. Mandela himself. So the four of us went off together for what must have been an hour, hour and a half. Um, and it was my role. I'm sort of next in the hierarchy, if you like, when the director's not there, uh, to do the directing. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, it was. Um, would you mind looking a little bit right, Mr. Mandela? He looked a little bit right. <clears throat> Would you mind looking a little bit left, Mr. Mandela? Yes. Is that a, a white rhino over there, Mr. Mandela? Oh, yes, a white rhino. That's brilliant. Um, I may, as is my want, because when that camera gets on my shoulder, I get quite inquisitive. I may have asked him a couple of questions. I, I don't recall. Um, but we did that to take about an hour and a half, something like that. There, there came a point where he said, OK, um, I think that's fine now, guys. I think we'll go home. Said, yes, Mr. Mandela, of course. And we all went home back to the reserve. And I still remember him now. He thanked us all. Of course, it was before the smartphone era. So uh, there are some photos somewhere, but not the, the smartphone. Let's take a picture. Yes, of your course. Yeah. Um, oh, that's an amazing story. Yeah. yeah. And, and Winnie Mandela, his wife, um, his first wife was still very much alive. And she was there as well, I think. And then I remember clearly he said, thank you very graciously. We all said thank you back, of course. And then he wandered off. And uh, yeah, that was it. That was my experience, my afternoon with um, Mr. Nelson Mandela, yeah. It's, it's funny that you could say, I've had an afternoon with Nelson Mandela. Not many, well, I suppose there's a few people, but it's just in the sort of scenario you were in, you were there, you were working as well. It was it was part of your job. And that's a job that you've kind of, sometimes you've just got to pinch yourself and kind you of go- You had to pinch yourself, yeah. um, absolutely. But, but you're absolutely right that we are there to do a job. Um, and it's blending that sort of um, technical, side um getting all that right uh, because the business has an uncanny way of when you get back home and, and the editor six weeks later or even longer is busy editing if you haven't got that one shot they forget all the angst that you'd yeah. had trying to get those shots in the first place and they just want to know why you haven't got that shot so yes we are doing our job there um but there are there are those amazing moments i mean again i was very lucky it was just before i went to south africa but i went to leningrad as it was called with enoch powell and of course you know you know very marmite like character in terms of yep. you know love and hate <laughs> um and we were doing a film on perestroika um and we got to know him very very well um and in amongst all these pinch your pinch yourself moments that you, you you rightly refer to i still remember to this day we, we pulled out of leningrad um at the station in leningrad en route to moscow um and um he we we were late or we late in arriving and i remember him running down the platform throwing all the camera gear onto the carriage now that's not the sort of thing you expect to hear someone saying about enoch powell but he was desperate to help 
At the oh. same time, he, he, his experience, and obviously he'd been in the war as well, his experience was such that when we were in Leningrad and we were interviewing those that had survived the Nazi siege, um, and there was one woman I remember saying, um, it was a husband, I think, or it was, a, it was a friend at least, they'd been walking side by side down along the street and he stopped. And she turned to say, why have you stopped? And he just frozen to death, literally while he was walking. And it was that ability to actually, as someone that had been through the war, he'd not been through the siege of Leningrad, but he'd been through the war to actually be understanding of what that woman's predicament had been, that experience yeah. of the awfulness of war. So you see often both sides. Um, and, and when you have these pinch yourself moments, I'm always aware there should be humor there as well. And, and that moment of him helping us get the cases on the, the train, <laughs> Um, is one and, and, I, and I remember as well the same sort of era something completely different but <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to go to the North Pole and um, I was filming with my cameraman who was an underwater cameraman he went underneath the ice um, filming narwhals this massive whale with the, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. musk the, on the front yeah the unicorn of the seas as, as they call yes. it um, beautiful animal um, but we were miles from anywhere and Martin, the cameraman, again, sadly, no longer with us, a brilliant cameraman. Uh, I assisted him for a number of years. He just had a rope tied around his waist. The rope came up through the little hole in the ice. And as he went down, there's actually nobody around us for miles and miles. As he went down, he said, Jeremy, just keep your foot on the rope. And I'm thinking, well, Martin, what am I likely to do? I'm not take my foot off the rope. We never see you again. There's nobody around here for hundreds of miles. But it's just lovely moments like that, that in amongst all these um, extraordinary sort of um, iconic people that I've been fortunate enough to film with, you do see those sort of um, sort of lighter moments as well. Yeah, you're almost, I mean, you could get to the point you're almost a little bit delirious because of the situation that you find yourself in. You're kind of like, oh, I'm here. And then it's almost like, <laughs> I mean, if it was me, I find myself, oh, I'm holding a rope for a man who's filming a novel <laughs> underneath some ice in the North Pole. That's almost like, that. that I just find that, for me personally, my sense of humour, just be like, I just couldn't stop laughing if that was me. Totally. And <laughs> yeah. That's from memory as I was on the time. And I think that's absolutely right. And um, th th there's something as well that, that when I'm on, particularly now as, as a cameraman, um, that when I have that camera on my shoulder, my persona changes a little bit. Um, okay. I... I get much more confident. Um, I know you, you, you were going to mention my Angola trip, but, but I mentioned yeah. at the beginning that I, that I filmed in Gulf Wars. Uh, the first Gulf War, uh, we were embedded with the RAF and flew um, into uh, and across Kuwait when it was still very much being fought for. Um, and I was in Angola in 1997, covering the Civil War um, and barbaric absolutely barbaric um and that's the sort of situation though that when i have my camera on my shoulder um i gain a sort of confidence i gain a sort of um uh, an assertiveness that i'm not brazen i'm not i'm not risking my life but there are occasions there when if it hadn't been for the camera on my shoulder i might have thought slightly differently um i mean just to give you an example we we were there with the united nations and I clearly remember one day when we were out in this um, four-wheel drive 
this Indian captain who was sort of running the sort of platoon that we were filming with had just got fed up, sick to death with a load of villagers that refused to walk down to a pond to get water. They did a massive detour instead, you know, a couple of miles. And there was a, a track full of elephant grass because nobody had gone down there, just covering the short couple of, um, you know, uh, 20 or 30 yards down to the pond. And they said, don't drive down there, don't drive down there, um, it's mined. And of course, there's a serious, um, any, any sort of civil war, but particularly Angola mines were prevalent yeah. everywhere. And he said, no, 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 I'm going to prove to you it's totally safe. We're going to drive down here. I'm going to, you're not going to keep walking miles. You're going to walk down here in the future. And they were, they were almost, I still see them. They were almost banging on the side of the van saying, don't go down there. And I was in the front seat. I was filming and uh, the director and the sound recorders were in the back. And uh, we drove down and nothing happened. Um, but it's moments like that when, I don't know, it's, 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 it's like, the camera brings a, a confidence and almost a, a self-belief that it's going to be okay. Do you think it's like a, because you have this such a passion to tell a story or show other people a story through what you're doing, do you think there's almost like if you're running into danger, so to speak, or, you know, is there like a bravery that comes across you because you're kind of like, I need to tell this story. I need to let people know what's going on here. Is, is there something around that to it or... What, no, what, no, I, I think there probably is. Yeah, no, because because a lot of these situations are again when you just see some downright injustice going on in front yeah. of your camera, or something horrible has been done to someone, um, and often it's just the way it's worked on me. I'm often been pointing my camera at people have been facing some form of adversity, and I do and always have had um, a thing for the underdog. It's just just in my nature. Um, and so, yes, I mean, in Angola, again, we were there doing stuff with mines and children. Um, and this wonderful family spent, the, or we spent a day with this wonderful family, the farmers, and they were collecting wood. Now, can you imagine kids being sent off to collect wood, bare feet, where there's mines everywhere? And they don't know where the mines are. Um, and so indiscriminate, so cruel, as I said, so barbaric. Um, and we spent a whole day with them um, safely. Um, but I remember, this is one of these lifelong images that I remember, and it wasn't actually through my camera, but as we came back, we put the camera down and the mother sent the, the I suppose she must have been 12, 13 year old little girl, the daughter out with a, a tray of tea and cold drinks for the crew. Uh, and I remember this little girl was handing them around and it was the one member of the family that had been injured by this most awful, um, these sort of horrible, horrible devices. Yeah. Um, and her leg had succumbed to some horrible shrapnel wound, which hadn't been bandaged up properly. But the fact she, as she handed the tea around, managed, managed to smile and the dignity she had was humbling enough to bring tears to the eyes. So in answer to your question, I, it, it, it is moments like that, that you do it. You're not gonna risk if you know it's stupid or you know it's really dangerous, you're not going to yeah. do it. And I'm the first one to do that. But I think there is a confidence that comes when I have that camera on my shoulder. And I think there is when you're in that sort of situation, you just want to do it for these people um, because, you know, that's the least they deserve. Yeah. How in some, I mean, I mean, many circumstances, I would imagine that how can you almost with what you're seeing, can you switch off what you're seeing, if that makes sense? 
So, because again, it can be quite horrible, you know, horrific to, to some people to see, but how do you switch that off and kind of sit, stand there and go, I'm here to do a job? It is, it is, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase that really, but if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it does. No, no, I know what you mean. Um, there is, uh, as you said earlier, you know, we're there to do a job. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean to say that we just walk away when something awful has happened. Um, what I do and what I like to think I always have done is have empathy. Mm-hmm. I like to think that, you know, I'm just a, a, a human being and I can show compassion. So because I'm there doing a job, the way I point the camera, um, the way I frame it, so on and so forth, I hope ticks the box in terms of doing the job. And also afterwards, if we can help in some way, you know, the actual film hopefully is going to help because it will be something that will be seen back home. Hmm. But if I can help in some way, we can help as an agent, you know, we will do so. Um, it, it's always that slightly um, difficult thing to, 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 to stand away and be objective. Um, I've done stuff much closer to home. I've done stuff closer to, to where you are, Gavin, Southampton, where I've done um, social documentaries with, with lots of sort of, you know, um, sort of relationship issues where there's been violence involved. Mm. Um, and there, when you see people succumbing to violence, you really do want to stop. So that involves often because we're a crew and we're often a close-knit crew, we get the opportunity to have major debriefs at the end of the day and say, look, what do we think about this? What should we do about that? Um, how can we help? And, and often that might be a, a That's good. Film, the film, but also there's a lot of talking going on behind the scenes. And um, for example, that um, uh, Cutting Edges, it was called for Channel 4, I'm talking about in Southampton, the director, producer and director and the um, main contributor were getting on you know, very well, just in terms of relying on each other. So yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a good question because I also like to make the point clear that we're just not parachuted in um, and parachuted out. I like to strike a relationship with anyone that's happy to be in front of my camera. Um, and um, I just don't want people to think we're just there to get the story and get out. We, we tell the story truthfully, um, but we also want to be part of that story if we can, mm. yeah. Because you think from, uh, you know, with a lot of the work that you've done, I mean, it can be, don't, I'm trying to put this the best way, but invasive into people's lives, can't it? So it's almost like you have to have that empathy and understanding that I'm here to do a job. I'm I'm filming you. It, it might not be like the the clip that you sent me. Um, was it yesterday around that young lad um, who had ADHD and um, all sorts of things? You know, and he had behavioural problems, didn't he? So I mean, that's kind of like. Um, trying to think the point that I'm trying to make now I've kind of wandered off but uh no it's just it's just seeing those things and it's a difficult thing to watch and you know invading people's space um in their homes as well isn't it so that that's yeah I mean the film you're referring to is very personal um sort of in terms of um the young teenager is is the teenage lad is bullying uh, extreme extreme bullying to his mother both verbally and, and occasionally physically um, and that's the case that I was referring to in terms of you have to look at it uh, objectively um, you have to make sure um, that, that that they are fully aware that you're there um, 
as almost part of the story. Um, and I have to be honest with that. That was an awful lot of getting to know them beforehand. Um, now obviously, we yeah, can't I'd do imagine, that. Yeah. yeah, we can't do that in Australia or maybe, um, you know, Angola, but we can do it, you know, on our own doorstep. Mm. And there was a, a lot of sitting around having cups of coffee and stuff like that. Um, but that still didn't stop the lad taking a lunge at me on a couple of occasions. That still didn't stop the, the, um, uh, the language and so on and so forth. But yeah. I think it's trust. I genuinely think it's trust mm. with all yeah. these people that you have to build up. And that's often not me that does that. I mean, it's there. It's me that does that when I've got a camera pointed at them. But this can be weeks or even months before, which is when you have the production team out there gaining these people's trust. Um, and it's sometimes a, a big leap of faith for the people on the other side of the camera to do. But I've, I've yet to have anybody turn around and object mm. to having a camera pointed at them. But again, that's you, you, I imagine you've got that. I mean, it's maybe not you building the relationship necessarily, but you've got that in mind, that word trust, when you're doing your job, essentially, aren't you? So, yeah. Totally, totally. It's trust. Um, it's having uh, an empathy. Mm. Um, it's um, not in any way trying to be the, the person that, that stands out. You are there, you merge into the wall. Um, and, and again, we go back to our, our favorite three, my favorite three photographers. Um, they give you iconic images, but the story is what they show you. The story isn't them. Mm. Um, and the stuff that Don McCullen's done um, where he's just taken a photo in a, in a Bradford tea room in 1970s, where you can look at it for 10, 20 minutes because each place you look in the photograph, there's a different story to be told. Yeah. So still, we try, uh, uh, we have behind the camera, as, as I say, these visual storytellers, is one where we shouldn't be the storytellers. We're doing a lot, yes, and we're engaging our, uh, our viewer with the use of light and composition and stuff. But we shouldn't be the story. Um, it's that that ability, and I, and I think it's it is trust. It's it's empathy, but it's also knowledge, in terms of the the women and men behind the camera, um, knowing um, how to use that trust and record it faithfully. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So other work that you've been involved with was around um, Harry Patch. Um, is it the World War Two um, veteran? Wasn't it? And where? Um, uh, First World War. Oh, first world worse. Sorry, I, yeah, I didn't realise that. So yeah, so tell us a little bit, a little bit more about that. Well, 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 they were doing a film, the BBC, um, with Harry Patch, who was the last British uh, veteran of the First World War. Mm. It was when I worked with him, when we worked with him, he was well into his hundreds. He could have been 109, something like that. Wow. That's astonishing. Um, and he'd always said he wouldn't go back to Passchendaele, which is where he'd fought in 1917. Um, and his mates, he'd been in something like the Somerset Light Infantry and all his mates had been killed. He was in the machine gun crew um, from memory. I think I've got that right. Um, and he survived, his mates didn't. And at the end of it, he said he'll never go back. In fact, he had an extraordinary career. He then, just down the road here, he was a firefighter in Bath in the, in the Second World War. So, you know, he, he lived life to the full um, and survived. And the deal was that he agreed would come back to Belgium and we'd film him. Um, it was shot by a number of other cameramen as well, but I was fortunate enough to do the day when um, he agreed to meet the last German veteran. So the last German veteran who hadn't been fighting at Passchendaele from memory, the gentleman was from, um, from the German Navy. But anyway, they right. met. Um, and again, one of those moments, this is one of the great things I always say when I'm, I'm running my training is whenever you're filming, people don't need to speak. 
some of the best stories are just visual images. And that doesn't mean to say the, uh, the stills and the paintings we've spoken about, but even in movie making, it's when people don't speak. So mm, yeah. Harry and the gentleman who, forgive me, I, I've forgotten his name, the German gentleman, um, they met, they shook hands. There were a few words, but it was a bitterly cold morning. It's a February morning. Um, and Harry's understandable mantra was that it all been uh, a terrible waste. Um, and he, he said that to the, the, the German gentleman as well. Um, and there was a there was a short conversation. But but the point was, in terms of the way we filmed it, is we just had two wheelchairs outside facing each other, their coats and their rugs and their 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 carers standing around them with the battlefield beyond. Um, and that's where that empathy kicks in because it's me getting the shots. I'm, uh, you know, Don McCullough, as I say, does one shot. I have to give my editor a number of shots to edit together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's me giving the editor the shots that I think best relay what I'm seeing in front of me. Um, and of course it's the two shots of the wheelchairs facing each other. Um, and it was the faces as well, but it, interesting, it was the hands. Yeah, it was okay. the hands of them shaking hands, but also it's just their hands on their walking stick. These this wonderful knurled, creased elderly hands of both gentlemen, and what those hands had basically done, what those hands had seen, um, and there were few words, and yet it's one of those scenes that you know people still talk about. Um, so very lucky to again to be in that position, yeah. and we did also take Harry back to on his own solo to the place where his mates had died. And it was just him and me. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll go there, but I just go there with the cameraman. And the carer pushed him along this track and then he just backed off and left me alone with him. And it's an extraordinary moment because Harry obviously is no longer with us and to have yeah. been there with this extraordinary gentleman, um, the last survivor of the great war. And he said, he, he mumbled words that I, I, I'm not sure what he was saying. Um, and he, his eyes were just fixed where the guys had gone, where we, we think the guys, his colleagues had, had perished. But again, it was the hands yeah. on his walking stick, just swaying. Yeah. So yeah, no, it, yeah. it's lucky moments like that, but but the the the, the, the image is so powerful. The vision image so, can, be, can be so powerful. You don't always need words to go with it. Yeah. No, fantastic. That's a, I, th I, I like that story. That, that, that kind of, that just the imagery around it. And the fact that who, and I like that sort of uh, at the end, because he was there, even though you were there to film it, it was kind of, he was there for him. He wasn't there for anyone else. And it was- No, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, no, no, uh, uh, totally right. Yeah, no, absolutely right. There was, there was a lot of personal reasons for him wanting to mm. be there without a doubt. Um, he passed away a few years just after making the film as well. Mm. Um, but it's just those images. And as I say, a bit like the little girl in Angola, they're not always images I've seen through my camera. I, ho I hope they have been as much as possible. But I remember just looking at him when we finished filming, he had a little bead of dew just on, on his nose and he was perfectly warm. He wasn't cold, but his eyes were, were slightly glazed. He, he wasn't with us just for those, those couple of minutes. He was back. Uh, 18, 19 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, horrible for him, <laughs> to be honest. This it's can't be in a nice scenario at all to be in any part of that that war at all. It's just, yeah. yeah. <sighs> yeah. The, memory lingered on. The, the, the memories were still 
was still there for him. But again, you know, like all these situations, he was, um, he'd still have a laugh at the end of the day. He was a great sense of humor. Yeah. Um, and that's what I like about all these characters I film, the little girl smiling, she ended out the tea, you know, Harry Patch smiling and giggling at the end because he had his, um, he had his, his, his lady friend with him and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's just, it's just wonderful. It's, it gives yourself faith in humanity. And if I can just have a slice of that with my camera, then, you know, hopefully I'm doing an okay job. Yeah, and it's got. I guess the, the the story you're telling there is, especially in those scenarios, is there's such trauma, you know, that has happened to these people, you know, and then you're kind of showing a, a very human side to them as well. That you know they've experienced these horrible things, but they're yeah, still, but they're still there. Adversity. Mm. Uh, people that have this, uh, this an indomitable human spirit. But you know, I'm pleased to say it hasn't all been like that. I mean, I've done done the lighter stuff as well. Um, uh, yeah, because you you've done uh, you were airport, wasn't it? Airport. Yeah, in the mid '90s, mm. one of the first BBC Docker soaps. I shot that for two years, running around Heathrow Airport. Can't imagine it now, can you? But yeah, <laughs> we were running around the fantastic stuff, seeing Joan Collins coming in from LA, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I worked with Gordon Ramsay doing Kitchen Nightmares, yeah. Um, uh, Curry House in Nottingham, which was great fun. Um, and, and he's great to work with, and a lot of energy you can imagine as well. Um, and then more recently, Kevin McLeod, um, not Grand Designs. Um, I shot a lot of his, well, I did shoot his series, um, uh, Escape to the Wild, to the which yeah. was working with expats living around the world. Um, so there has been the lighter stuff as well, but they're still about people. Um, it's still about people that are having some experience, whether it be heavyweight or not, mm. still going, going through that sort of journey. Um, and it's one thing we all love as humans when we're watching these uh, television programs, uh, we love the journeys. You know, we want to get them there safely. What's going to happen on the way? Um, and that's when we point the camera at them. Um, and be it Kevin McLeod in Sweden, following people, uh, expats living up there, trying to make a living from the, the, the you know, the, the, the hard life in the middle of winter through to, you know, some of this other stuff, um, you know, Angola or, or, or wherever, then it's still that journey. Um, it's that um, ability to actually, do they come out the other end? What jeopardy are they going to have along the way? And sounds, like, sounds like an old Batman program. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, well, I mean, they are the same, but but it's interesting. I mean, in, in terms of this storytelling, um, <clears throat> my family and I were very lucky. We went down to um, the Pyrenees on holiday about two years ago, and we went in to see into the, one of the, the, the mountains to see some cave paintings. Okay. Um, and we walked in there, and uh, it's a great flourish, as you can imagine. It was pitch black, but great flourish. The, the guide had his little candle, and he brought the candle up. And as our eyes grew accustomed to it, and you know what I'm going to say, we, there was just sort of endless animals. Some of these animals had been carved into the rock. So right. the actual form of the rock 14,000 years ago had actually been uh, made to, to be the, 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 the tusks or the legs. Oh, okay. Um, some of these animals as well. That they that they painted um, actually were smaller, which sort of indicated to me, and I could be proved right or wrong, but they were using some form of what we call in the business a receding perspective. So they were giving the idea of depth in their ah, painting okay. by actually drawing them smaller, like it was disappearing into the distance. And so the reason for mentioning that is it's it's 
it's this ability for people to use the visual image both now and historically to actually tell a story probably of a journey about 14,000 years ago, telling people where to find the animals maybe to hunt, but leaving some memory, um, some evidence that all these years later, we, with that candle being brought up by the clever guide and shown still has an impact on us. Mm. Um, and so I suppose the point is that, you know, this, this, this recording of the visual journey, you know, in, in whatever this, this visual image, the, this recording of the visual image in whatever shape or form is is and can be so powerful to our to our audience yeah, yeah. and again it's it's i mean with technology developing this sort of uh i mean imagine when you were a young lad if you had a like a, a smartphone that could video and take photos and do all these things that that then to not bad quality sometimes you know yeah. and imagine there's a lot of people out there now that sort of are developing those you know those ideas that you have when you were younger so but it's just shows how much the visual image how important it is to people uh without a doubt yeah no i have this phrase it's why our audience look at a rembrandt or take a selfie it is the job we do how we actually um use lights how we use color and how we use this perspective this ability to give depth that does have a primeval trigger uh, in the human brain and it's something i'm doing with uh, both my filming and it's something i'm now doing with my company skills to film in terms of i'm just showing how if we use the right tools um we can trigger in our audience of today not least for 14,000 years ago but we can trigger on our, our audience today how we can use the visual image to do anything to sell a product to tell an emotive story uh, along the lines of what I've been telling you this evening, yeah. or, or or just to do an interview, you know, um, it's the same tools that we apply. Um, and so, yes, we are programmed to look at the visual image. And yes, when when I started, um, I didn't know any of the tricks or the trade. Hmm. As I said at the beginning, I was just sticking the film together. But now I know that. Now I know how powerful it can be. Um, and how emotive it can be. That's why I'm keen to pass that that knowledge on. Yeah. So others can come behind me, getting the same sort of um, um, getting the same sort of kick out of it, but also creating those amazing images. Yeah. yeah. There's because th that's a theme that when I've been doing these podcasts, a lot of the people that I speak to have this uh, immense amount of knowledge about their specific field, and all they kind of want to do is like. They know that they're confident in what they do and they just want to pass it on. And I just, I just find that fantastic that, you know, everyone who gets to these stages, you know, you kind of think with maybe with like human nature, some people kind of want to keep things to themselves, but with, with you and many others I've spoken to, mm. obviously you've set up skills to film mm. uh, in order to then share that knowledge. So, I mean, how long have you been, how long have uh, skills to film been going now? I suppose the gestation's been about eight years, something like that. Okay. Um, and it came round about by when I was filming. It might even have been with Gordon Ramsay. I remember one of my colleagues just tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Jeremy, that was really interesting. You, you pointed the camera um, over there at Harry, the, the young um, the lad who was washing the pans, um, but you didn't point it at some um, Gordon coming through the door. Why was that? And, and I suddenly realised 
A, I suddenly had a moment, have I done that right? But also I had a moment <laughs> where I was just thinking, well, actually, I do have this knowledge. And, 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 and there were two reasons for why Skills to Film started. One was, if I'm honest, just a pragmatic, uh, I was aware there was an awful lot of what we call self-shooters coming into the business who were learning to actually do their own filming, which is now the majority of the way the business is run by, by those doing their own shooting and directing. Um, so I thought that would be an interesting um, way to go, but, but I was keen to give something back. But also it was just a, pa a passion. <clears throat> it was just a passion that um, I had to use the camera in this sort of dynamic way that, that hopefully I've been describing tonight and using mm these tools that, that I believe the human uh, brain can react to, this sort of psychology to the way we react to a visual image um, that I was keen to pass on. And, and I, I'm, I, eight years ago, I'm not saying I was any good at running a, a, a live face-to-face -face workshop, but now they're very popular both across the broadcast industry. Mm. Uh, I do a lot of stuff with Sony and so on and so forth. Um, but we have people coming both so the face-to-face -face when we could do them are now on the online on on now on the online version. Mm -hmm. um, who realise there's two two parts to this filming business. There's the technical, which is just getting it in focus, getting the exposure right, getting something vaguely in the frame. But there's the visual storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, and if I showed you a silhouette of someone by a window in the daytime, so they were dark compared to the brightness outside you, I can almost guarantee you would be interested by that because the brain reacts to contrast in an intriguing, yes. interested way. Likewise, if I show a group of people sitting around a bonfire with lovely warm light on their face, you'd be intrigued by that as much as you would if I showed you a scene on January morning of a milk float going up and down the high street in blue light, that would have a, a, a different effect because color affects us in a different way. Mm. So, Skills to film actually teaches the technical, and, and, and I go into the technical side, not least with this proliferation of new cameras that we've been mentioning, but also very much go into, very much go into the storytelling side. And, and, I, and I do say, um, I have again one of my phrases, one of my Jeremy phrases: Don't just film what you see, film how you feel. Mm. Don't just film what you see, film how you feel. Um, and it's that empathy. It's that instinct. Uh, and to be quite honest with you, that's ex it's, a, it's an experience of life, which is so key that I help, right. I try to pass on because that, when you've got a camera on your shoulder for the women and men that come to my training, that's what's gonna help them to be a visual storyteller. That empathy, that instinct, experience. Like I, I can, you know, you can pick up the training, the technical training from, you know, watching it online and stuff. Yes. You yeah. can't necessarily pick up that passion um, from someone that's been there and done it um, better than listening to them um, and hear them um, speaking, I hope, evocatively in terms of what they've done, how they've done it, mm. um, and most of all, the effect it's had uh, on the people that have seen it. Yeah. I was going to ask what makes you stand out from other schools, but you've kind of hit the nail on the head with that by kind of saying it's the kind of the psychology behind it and just you know, bringing out the emotions in what you what you film. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's lots of other people that do it and do it very well. And, and, mm. and, and, and there's a fantastic sort of training out there. Um, I mean, I've never 
gone out of my way to do something they're not doing but all I have done is, is the two things I've mentioned I've, I've endeavored to do it from the heart in terms of I've been there listen to me and I'll tell you what it's like and I think there's something to say that when you've got a clip of your own program on the telly and you can refer them to that or you can play it in on a dvd yeah. then that training is that much more effective so i think that really helps mm. um and I, I think at the same time as well that when you're actually um there telling them about um you know the technical side as well you can relate the two things together in terms of um if you can see how you've created an effect and then you can explain technically how you've done it then that that sort of you know it ties the two things together, both the technical uh, and the storytelling. But no, there are without a doubt people out there that that, that that do it very well. But but I think it's that from my point of view. But also what I have done is link these two things together. Yeah, the ability to use this clever bit of kit on your shoulder to actually create this mood, this atmosphere, this emotion. Um, in terms of storytelling and it's no different to a book you want all the different undulations that you get in a paragraph in a book we've got to do that with our camera somehow um, and the psychology the word used just now is so key um, it's how close we are to people when we're filming them makes a difference mm. um, I mean I've shot the first uh, I was involved in the shooting uh, for the first couple of series of hunted for channel four and then the cameraman camera women are always along a lot further back because we're trying to make it look covert so we stand further away but on all the stuff i've described to you tonight the camera's been in there close and arm's length away yeah because we then as humans feel more comfortable in that place so that's something i do bring i don't know whether others do i'm sure they do but it's that um as i say that film how you feel don't just film what you see um and Ultimately, that's what's going to help sell the product. If it's a corporate training I'm doing in video content creation or my broadcast side, it's what's going to help sell that new trailer with Gordon Ramsay doing the new cookery program. I, um, I but it's a passion as well. Yeah. It's a passion. Yeah, no, I, it, it, it's, a, it, it, it's more than a job. It's a, it's a deep ingrained vocation. And, and it goes back um, again to those stills. Um, if you can look at a black and white still and just be taken into it um, in terms of the story by the way they framed it and where they've stood and what they've included not included what they've included or not included or what they've excluded um, then i've always believed that you shouldn't probably think too deeply as to why it's making me feel good and why it makes me feel happy or contented but just go with it yeah you could, lose, you could lose yourself in those sort of scenarios, can you? Quite easily. Yeah, it's having an effect. And, and you know, the, 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 the psychologists would tell you there's lots of chemicals bubbling around in your brain, oxytocin and stuff, mm. uh, serotonin, whatever. Um, that may be true. And I'm sure it is true. But, you know, sometimes just be in the moment and just let it sort of wash over you. Yeah. I was kind of thinking when you were saying uh, film what you feel and then referring back to that when you filmed that guy washing the pots on the uh, Kitchen Nightmares. Yeah. Because you like you certainly mentioned that you you said before about the underdog, you kind of want to see, you know, everyone's seen Gordon Ramsay walk through a door most probably a million times, but they haven't seen how that guy feels no. when Gordon Ramsay's walking in the room with most probably a, you know, a few choice Every words jump. to say. Yeah. Well, that's it's interesting. I mean, his name again coincidentally was was Harry as well, but but the story there was that 
I'd had my eye on him right from the beginning because every time Gordon would come through, the poor lad would jump and he wouldn't say anything. Yeah. But before the end of the series and the program, Gordon had him cooking oh, because okay. he had his eye on him as well. And I was aware, and I think Gordon's great for doing this and just in terms of taking people under his wing, that, that he was the underdog, but he was nurtured to help out in the kitchen and stuff. Um, and so you've got to be in this job, great people watchers. Um, you've got to be a watcher of body language. You've got to be a watcher of people's faces and faces and the human face in particular is where it all begins. You'd probably the same, say the same in your line of business when you're standing on your stage. It's mm. how people react. And they don't always need to be talking, as I say. Um, it's the way their face and their eyes in particular, we often say the eyes of the soul, react to any given situation that can say a thousand words. And I know it's, a, it's, it's a, an often used um, sentence, but it is true. Um, and again, going back to Don McCullen, that, that shot, and it's worth looking at, it's a tea room in Bradford and Avon, 1970s, maybe late 60s. And you've got a husband and wife just staring at the camera. And you don't need any captions or words because there are so many words coming at you from their expressions on their face. Right, okay. So I'll have to Harry's that one up. face in the kitchen, yeah. His face in the kitchen that morning, um, <laughs> in terms of when we were filming, um, was something that, you know, I'm not saying I alone had spotted, maybe the director did as well, but we'd spot him. Um, and you've got to be great people watchers with that camera um, just to see things that, that hopefully, um, you know, will help tell the story. And, and, and it goes back to something you were asking me earlier, actually. Uh, I mean, with the camera, I, I said uh, we're trying to tell the truth, which is obvious, but we're just trying to be faithful and uh, faithful to what's going on around us. So, you know, if we had been filming that little girl coming out with the plate of tea at the end of the, the shoot with the minefield, you know, I'd have been looking around at the mother and I would have got a shot of the mother looking proudly at her daughter. Yeah. Now, what chance has that daughter got now? That sort of look, you know, mm. but she's smiling, the little kid's smiling and the mother's looking proud. Or it would be um, the animals wandering around showing how um, you know, uh, humble a life they lead, uh, how, how sort of you know, poor a life they lead. So um, you do have to be a people washer. You've got to be looking around. You've got to be absorbing that. And that, without a doubt, has a direct influence in terms of where you point the camera. Yeah. You're building up that story like a, a massive patchwork quilt. Um, and it's you at the forefront frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Because, it, I mean, it, would, it wouldn't most probably have any story to it. If you just filmed the main... So, for example... Like, like you said about uh, Kitchen Nightmares, if, if you just filmed Gordon Ramsay the whole time, that would, wouldn't, I doubt he'd be doing very well. If you're filming the environment that maybe he creates, and again, like I say, with anything that you go to, you're filming the environment. Like the, the, the clip that you sent me about the, the young lad with the behavioral yeah. problems, you know, you weren't filming, you, there was clips of him, small clips, but everything else that was being filmed was, the, was his mum, the care worker that came, you know, the dog running away because their dog was scared. You know, it's all these little things that uh, kind of tell the story more than what the actual subject matter is, if that makes sense. Absolutely right. And as I say, and it's all and it's all brought together in one cohesive sort of form. But, you know, often, you know, as I say, we have a director there who's all eyes as well. But in the situation in the, in the scene you're talking about, 
it was just me on my own because there wasn't room for the director to be in there. Mm. So I was just covering it all alone. Um, but you try, as I say, you, you, you record it faithfully um, uh, and you have the people's trust. But there again, with, with the, the lady you're talking about there, Sally, Sally would often escape in the evening to go make a phone call to the uh, guy that was providing the counselling um, and, and, and the effort to help um, solve the, the, the issues, the behavioural issues. Um, and she would be hiding in a car um, up the hill, you know, in the housing estate. Uh, um, and she would often park up outside the, the funeral undertakers. Um, and that just happened to be where she parked. She'd get reception on the phone. Um, but for me, taking that still, that, that, that first initial shot outside, um, that sort of, it was a still image, just a car with her in there. Um, had the funeral undertaker sign above her inside. I mean, it said it all. Yeah. Um, so it it, 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 it it does. And then we cut inside, uh, which I always remember, um, and to get the rest of the shots in the sequence. And she was there looking, watching. She was concerned the lad was going to find her. But hanging down from her mirror, I think it was a, a plastic Father Christmas. It was little models and it was just twisting in the wind and, and her breath, you know. Um, so it's moments like that. So, yeah, you've got to be all eyes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's often, you know, myself or, or my colleague just doing it, so you don't get everything. But you have that relationship both with the person you're filming, so you pick these moments up, and you know they get to use their mannerisms, but also you have the relationship as well with the, the team that are around you. And the recordist will tap you on the, the shoulder and say, look, can you see that over there? It's a great team effort. And at the end of the day, when you've covered a scene, like any of the stuff we've been speaking about, um, this evening, then you do, when it's been a good successful day, you get a great buzz out of it um, because you have created something that didn't exist before. Um, it hopefully will influence someone or some, you know, a group of people. Um, and, you know, at the very least, it will engage that audience that we've, that, you know, that subconscious effect in terms that they will hopefully remember you the next day or the shots you've done or, you know, the week or the month after. Absolutely. Right. To wrap up then, uh, Jeremy, where can people find out a little bit more about Skills to, skills to, uh, sorry, skills to Film? Where, where can they find it? On the website or social uh, sites? That's very kind to ask you. Well, well if you look up under um, Your Skills to Film, we have a, an online version that started up because of COVID. And there's a massive site, Your Skills to Film, which you can tap in. And a lot of the webinars I've recorded are all on there. Mm -hmm. There's lots of stuff in terms of um, uh, anecdotal, but also there's some of my films there, but also there's some um, just short one minute, two minute films explaining different things about cameras for those more tech minded, what exposure and, and focal length means, so on and so forth. Um, so that's your skills to film. Um, and also in terms of I have my own Facebook page, Skills to Film, which is a, a, a well right. followed trodden path I know um, <laughs> in terms of people uh, I have a lot of followers that just follow and see what I'm up to see the sort of stuff I'm doing um, but yeah if you forget all of that just tap in your skills to film because there's there's um, you know um, um, uh, tap in your skills to film because there's actually uh, a corporate website as well where they can go via uh, that into the, the your skills to film Right. I'll make sure when I when I post about this uh, podcast that I'll uh, I'll make sure I include all the links as well, so they'll easily be able to find you. Thank you. Okay, then, Jeremy. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, listening to your stories today. It's been maybe one of the most fascinating podcasts I've done so far. 
So I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Gail. It's been lovely to uh, speak to you and thanks for giving me the opportunity. No, not at all. Okay, thank you very much. Looking for that bit of information, that insight or inspiration to spur you on right now? Then look no further, my friends. I'm Gav Jones, and I want to add The Big House Podcast to your life, for no extra cost, of course, apart from your much-valued time. I spend my time interviewing guests from a variety of backgrounds, entertainment, health and fitness, food and drink, plus so much more. The Big House Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. The Big House Podcast. So much inspiration under one roof.